Good morning. Oh, oh no. I'm getting double dog dared by a boss. It's too soon. I'm just a little off sometimes, and he knows about it. So I have an alternative ego and character. I have several. But I don't know. It may be too soon. I've only been at this church since I was 27. I may not be able to do it just yet. I need to wait a while. All right. I'm glad you're here. Welcome, everybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this church family. I love being here with my brothers and sisters and being before your word. I thank you for how you're teaching us. I thank you that your word is so glorious, so deep. There's no exhausting it. Lord, forgive us for those times we walk past the Bible thinking, eh, we don't understand or we're bored or all these silly things when the, the truth is you are showing us that it is inexhaustible. I pray that you would affect your purpose in our individual lives, but also corporately as a family as we come before your word. Shape us by your word, Lord. We would have it no other way. And Lord, I pray for David as he comes to teach us. I pray that you would inspire and bless him. I pray that the word um, continues to be his great joy. Hmm. Thank you for uh, the privilege that we have to be taught by a faithful son of yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Diana. So what I want to do at the outset this morning, normally we would do some Q&A at the end. And and we might have a little room for that, too, today, just in some of the new stuff we cover. But because I wasn't able to be with you last week live and in person, uh, and, and we, covered, we covered some material which for, for some folks might be challenging, I wanted to uh, just leave a, a, a little, might be, might be, um, just leave a, a few minutes here at the outset, because if, if, you might have a couple of questions just from last week on what we looked at. So... If, if you do, great. Now's a great time to ask. If you don't, no worries. We'll just dive straight in. But if you've got a couple of questions from the historical side of things that we were looking at last week, uh, then we want to we dive into that. So uh, anybody, anybody want to tackle anything from last week that you want to specifically ask about and get after? Anyone? Yeah, Christine. Well, there are various, so Christine's asking about what, what, what sort of went on in Luther's life between, you know, 23 and 43. And, and there's, 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 there's no real certainty. There seems to, Luther was, uh, had, had very strong eschatological views, as did many of the other reformers. They believed that they were living, some of them believed, that they were living at the end of history. The Pope was the Antichrist. And that's what the original edition of the Westminster Confession says as well. So it was a, a, a not unprominent view, and I think Luther, some people suppose, that he believed he was about to see the conversion of the Jews, and when he didn't see the conversion of the Jews and he saw them continuing to oppose the preaching of the gospel, then he became bitter and um, uh, very, very difficult. Now, I think it also needs to be said that the language that you see that he wrote is, is of course, repugnant. But Luther was an equal opportunity offender. Um, Luther said even crueler and uglier things about many people. Uh, so, so he didn't, you know, single out the Jews. Um, he had things to say about just about anybody who disagreed with him that would make you blush. And uh, that's, that was just sort of his temperament. Yeah, he was a grumpy person. Uh, so, so there you are. 
But, but it's not certain, really, what, what went down in that. But the, the supposition is that when he didn't see that eschatological hope realized, and he was, he was cross about their opposition, continuing opposition, that really he kind of fell back into what was a, an attitude that, that was prevalent in the time. It was not uncommon. Doesn't make it any less, doesn't make it any less sinful, any less vicious. It doesn't mean that you excuse it, but he, but it was, um, it was there. Now, his final sermon, his last sermon, is mentioned in that resolution from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, and it had more positive remarks. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't excuse the other, and it doesn't fully explain why it existed. So it's supposition, but no, no one knows for sure. Yeah. Some good biographies on Luther that cover some of that stuff. Heiko Obermann's, in particular, can be helpful. Great question. Thanks. Had any of you ever come across that before? Were you, for how many of you that was just new? you just never seen that. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Glad you got it. I grew up Lutheran, of course. And um, so, you know, you live, with, you live with the memory of some of that stuff. And you're going, whoa. Yeah. Tyndale, yeah. Yeah, uh, in the persecution of Tyndale, the hunting down of Tyndale. That, yeah. It, it was ferocious. And by the way, the person who instituted that targeting of Tyndale to hunt him down and kill him was St. Thomas More. Yeah, that's the guy who's behind that, who put the reward on his head and said, we're going to hunt this Englishman down and we're going to kill him, we're going to stop him. Now, now, the reason for that, of course, is there, is there are multiple reasons for it, but um, is because you could not separate religion and politics. Uh, to, to, um, to look to reform a church or have an ecclesiastical movement would impact the state. It was governmental. Um, those things could not be separated at that point. We live in a, a very different Western democracy in which those things are there's some pretty fine, li- definite lines between those things. And, and, and so people may get angry about politics and they may get angry about religion, but if you really want to make them angry, make the two intersect, right? And so uh, put them together. And then if you want to make it, make it really interesting, throw in the fact that the political force has, has uh, the, the, the power of the sword at its disposal to make sure that any religious opposition is put down. So it was a, a very violent time. And you're right to note its violence. We sometimes think about the early persecution of the Christians by the Romans. Well, there were four periodic persecutions of, of the Christians by the Romans, really four major episodes over the first three centuries of the church. And it resulted in the death of maybe three or 4,000 Christians. All right? Now, that's three or 4,000 too many, and we treasure those martyrs. But it should not be forgotten that more Christians, more Christians, were killed in one day by other Christians. On the, uh, when the Huguenots were slaughtered on the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre uh, in France, um, in which thousands of Protestant Christians were slaughtered. And it was such a joyful thing that the, uh, uh, the Pope at the time issued medallions celebrating the slaughter. Uh, so... 
Christians have a long history of violence, actually. And it's, so it's something, it's something which, uh, uh, it's, it, it, when Christians are violent, it is not fidelity to our founder. It is infidelity to our founder. Jesus' teaching is completely contrary to it. Um, so, but, but Christians have done it, and it's, it's very sad. But there you are. So in, in that period of time, 1500s um, through the uh, early 1700s was a very, very painful, difficult time in Europe. Yeah. Others? Other questions on any of it? All right, so here's the main thing I had to have you get. I want to make sure you get this. Um, and, and, and that is we, we can't, to, to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 correctly, we have to make sure that we are not reading it through a lens that says here's Christianity and here's Judaism, two different religions, all right? Because that category at this point doesn't exist. It's, it, and so it, to put it very simply, if you were reading a prophecy of Isaiah or Jeremiah, and Isaiah or Jeremiah were prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity and pointing out the sins of the Jews, would you say that Isaiah and Jeremiah were anti-Semitic? Would you say that Isaiah and Jeremiah were anti-Jewish? You wouldn't, would you? Why? Because they're what? They're Jewish. It's an internal critique, an internal prophetic critique, not an external, not an external persecution. All right, so when Paul and the other apostles, and when Jesus is speaking about Israel and the Jews, they are not speaking from the outside in. They're speaking from the inside about what is going on in their community. And so that is absolutely critical to grasp. Um, the idea of Christianity, which is a word that doesn't even exist at this point, all right, let me, let me just put it this way. How many believe Jesus was a Christian? Right. <laughs> he was not, right? The word doesn't exist. Okay, the, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. All right, so, but Christianity as a religion didn't exist. Paul identifies himself as a member of the sect of the Nazarenes among the Jews. All right? He talks about that in one of his defenses in the book of Acts. So, well, I'm a member of the sect that's called the Nazarenes. Yes, that's true. That's how within Second Temple Judaism, those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah were identified. Gentiles started at Antioch calling the followers of Jesus Christians. All right? So... Um, Uh, anti-Jewishness and um, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, by the way, is a 19th century development that is racially based. Anti-Jewishness is a centuries-old movement which is not racially based. It's just opposed to people of a particular religion. Anti-Semitism comes out of 19th century views on racial superiority particularly white racial superiority uh, that was um, theoretically reinforced in the views of some people, particularly in the 20th century, by Darwin. They used Darwin to reinforce their ideas about racial superiority. 
And that was what was picked up by Hitler. So there's not a direct line, you know, on the anti-Jewishness issue to Hitler. Hitler picked up on a racial superiority idea, and then he 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 uh, took anti-Jewishness and uh, of of medieval Europe, and he co-opted it, made it part of his argument on race. Uh, but uh, like um, uh, others, Hitler was not just opposed to the Jews. Uh, he was opposed to blacks and, and other groups as well. So, uh, but anyway, back to this, this, this particular time frame. When we read Romans, we're not reading about Christianity as a separate religion. All right, so this is an internal issue that's going on. All right, so let's pick it up. And let's note, in contrast, of course, Paul's heart. So let's look over here in Romans 9 and uh, the first five verses. Now, what I hope to do today um, is to get through the first, oh, 13 verses or so of Romans 9. So we'll, we'll do the best we can. Romans 9, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. So in these first few verses, Paul identifies, of course, the massive significance of Israel in redemptive history. Look at everything that God brought to the world through Israel. That's in verses 4 and 5. He identifies Israel as the adopted sons of God. Now remember, in Romans 8, themes of nothing can separate you, and you have the spirit of adoption. All of that is what Paul's been emphasizing. And he's been writing that really to all these people who are Gentiles as well. And so what he's telling them is that, is that your adoption as sons of God, Romans 8, 14 and so on, you are the adopted children of God, is something that is yours because Israel has been God's son. You are, you are sharing in their adoption. So the adoption as sons and the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple, all that's going on there, and the fact that the Messiah of the world was brought to the world through Israel is something that Paul wants to emphasize. So is there, again, is there any room in Paul's thought for being anti-Jewish? No, none. And in fact, you can see his heart in this, in the first verse. Um, I'm telling the truth. Watch this constant, this overlay of, of words. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's going to great pains here to emphasize this. What he has is not anger, but sorrow and grief. And he could wish himself, if possible, accursed and separated from Christ. Now, in Romans 8, he just went through this huge soliloquy saying, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ? And, of course, the answer to that is what? No. But he says, I, if I could, if I could be cursed from God for their sake, if my loss would bring them all in, I would do it. 
Now, whose heart does that reflect? What does that sound like? That sounds just like Jesus. But it has an antecedent in Israel's own history. And that's in Moses. Paul here is echoing the life of Moses as well as showing the heart of Jesus, which says, my life for yours. If you go back to Exodus 32 for just a moment, in Exodus 32, verse 30, now this is right after the golden calf incident. And I just want to show you something that should show up in your, in your English version of the uh, text there, no matter what version you have. In Exodus 32, you have the golden calf incident. This, so Moses comes down and he sees what's happening with the golden calf and he takes the tablets of the law and he throws them down and they're, and they're, they're broken. He sees the people are out of control and God's judgment begins to break out. And so in verse 28, it says, on the day the law was given, 3,000 men of, of the people died that day. Now let's go to verse 30. It came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin. Now I am going up to the Lord. I'm going to go back up on the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. Now, what do you see in your English Bible right there? If you will forgive their sin, what do you see next? How many of you have a dash? Do you have the dash? Okay, that's because in the text there's a gap. There's a, and what that is, is a pause. That's Moses, he goes up on the mountain and he says, Lord, these people have blown it. Now, Lord, if you will forgive their sin. And he just waits. What are you going to do, God? Are you going to forgive them? And there's no answer. There's silence. And then look what he says. If not, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, how many of you would say that for people? Most of the stuff I see on Facebook from Christians says, Oh, Lord, I'm right. Blot them out. <laughs> There's very few people who would write, Oh, Lord, these people are in sin. Have mercy on them. I'm waiting. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? You're not answering. Well, I'll tell you what, Lord. If you're not going to have mercy on them, count me out. Cut me off. That's an intercessor. That's a mediator. That's Moses saying, I'm going to go up, maybe, now look what he said, I'm going to go up and see if I can make atonement. Now, those of you who studied Romans, you know what that word is. Moses wants to know if he can make atonement. He's offering himself as a substitute. He's offering his own life as payment for their sin. God isn't going to take it. He won't take it. God will find a way. But he's not going to take Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. You go now and lead these people where I told you. You go down back down there and do what I told you to do. <laughs> That's God's answer to Moses. So, but I want you to catch what is in Paul and in Moses in terms of a heart for those who have sinned, for those who are in unbelief. He says, my life for your life. That's the heart of the gospel, and it's the heart of these remarkable leaders. 
Now, into these next few verses, then, we have this catalog of all the things that were entrusted to Israel. And again, that's emphasizing the point that even though so much has been entrusted to them, they nevertheless do not believe. And that's hard for us to grasp. How could a people who were given so many gifts, then, surrounded by all of these gifts, fail to believe? Well, the very first person in the Bible called the Son of God is Adam. And think about how much was entrusted to him. Think about how many good gifts were given to Adam and the beauty and the grace that he's surrounded with. And yet, what did he do with it? He didn't believe either. He squandered it. He rebelled. So one of the things that's going on here as Paul begins to unpack it is that unbelief, unbelief should not shock us. That should not shock us. Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Rather, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now in verses 6 through 13, we get to the beginning of the heart of Paul's argument about unbelief in Israel. Even though they've been entrusted with so much, there's still a great number who disbelieve, but... The fact of disbelief is not something that should shock us. And here's why it shouldn't shock us. We should remember, first of all, that there have always been, there's always been in Israel, and again, Paul's speaking from within Israel, there's always been a distinction between those who believe and those who don't believe. This is not new. So, for instance, he mentions a couple of things, he rem- and he don't, though he doesn't mention them by name. He mentions Abraham's sons, all right? Abraham had two sons, didn't he? Now, we think of Isaac, but there's one in the verse here that's not named. What's his name? Ishmael, right? Now, he's not named in the verse, but he's there in the story. We know, and the people reading this know the story. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Oh, so though someone is naturally descended from Abraham or from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, that in and of itself, the physical descent, does not in and of itself actually make them an Israelite. There's something more to being an Israelite than genetics. And Paul gets at this back in Romans 2. So this is going to be an amplification of something he's already said. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2 for just a second. 
Romans chapter 2, verse 28. Again, talking within Israel. For he is not a Jew, this is Romans 2, 28. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one, where? Inwardly. Circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So within Judaism, there was an acknowledgement that there were people who were physically Jewish, outwardly, religiously Jewish, but their hearts were unchanged. Now, can I ask you a question? Let's just pause there for a second. Have you ever noticed any, any Christians like that? How many of you have been that Christian? Right? So you run into people who go, well, I was in church all my life, and then when I was 40, I met Jesus, and my heart was changed. I was going through the motions. I had all the outward stuff. I had the name Christian, but everything about my life, it's bitterness, it's anger, it's lusts, everything I was doing, my partying, my drunkenness, everything I was doing, all my adulteries, everything said I'm not. But, boy, I was at church every Sunday. There, I mean, a lot of people have had that kind of, that kind of background. So this phenomenon of religious externalism versus authentic spiritual relationship with God is not new. What we see is not new, and it was true in Israel. So Abraham had this son. If we go back to Romans chapter 9 now, he had a son named Ishmael. And did God, did God despise Ishmael, or did God protect Ishmael? God protected Ishmael. He protected him. But God had said that my purpose will be established through a miraculously conceived child. Not one that you've conceived by your cleverness. All right? So he promised Sarah. That's why it says here in Romans chapter 9. It's through Isaac, your descendants, that will be named. It is not the children of the flesh. This is verse 8, who are the children of God. But the children of promise are regarded as the seed. For this is the word of promise. And then he quotes from the book of Genesis where God comes and he sits down and has a meal with Abraham and he says, you're going to have a son and Sarah's in the background and what does Sarah do? You all remember this? What does she do? She laughs. She laughs. (laughs) Right. Because how old is she? Right, right. So so she's very old and so she starts laughing and God looks at her laughter and he goes, oh yeah? I'm going to be a year from now. A year from now, we'll see who's laughing. And so she has a baby boy and she names him what? Laughter. Isaac. That's his name. Laughter. So she has baby laughter. All right? And it's through baby laughter, not through Ishmael, who was born not of promise, but natural cleverness, and nothing miraculous about his birth. In other words, to be part of the family of Abraham means not a natural birth, but a supernatural birth. This is why when Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you need to be born from above. You need to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? How can that be? How can that be? Can a man get back inside his mother's womb? And Jesus went, you're the the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this stuff? 
In other words, this is 101, professor. You should have gotten this in kindergarten. You, to be the seed of Abraham, have to be spiritually born. All right. So Paul's picking up on that. And then, verse 10, not only this, there was Rebecca. Also, she conceived twins by one man, our father laughter. Through the twin, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Okay, so Rebecca has two, two sons, Jacob and Esau. Which one comes out first? Esau comes out first, these twins. And there's somebody grabbing his heel as he pops out. That's, that's younger brother Jacob. He's grabbing him. So he's, the, the, the name Jacob appears to mean like grabber. Grabber. And um, so Esau's out. Now Jacob's out. And here's the interesting thing. Both are allowed to live. In the ancient Near Eastern world, twins were regarded as um, demonic. And have you ever heard the phrase, the evil twin? Right? Okay. Okay. So generally speaking, it was felt in the ancient world that one was good and one was bad, but you would never know which one, and so you killed them both. Okay? Ancient Near Eastern practice. Both of these were allowed to live. Okay, so both Jacob and Esau live, which is a miraculous thing in and of itself. But God has said, before they were ever born, he said to Isaac, and he said to Rebekah, the older is going to serve the younger. Now that's an inversion of the, of the regular order in which the firstborn has most of the inheritance. And he says, no, the one who comes out first is going to be the servant of the younger one. I'm going to supplant the natural order here. Now watch this. I'm going, to, I'm going to supplant the natural order. My purpose, my will, is more important than the natural order. Something supernatural is going on here. My purpose is being established. And so the purpose of God being established through these boys' lives is more important than their birth order. Sometimes you hear about your birth order. Well, I'm the second son, so <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, you sort of make your, your stuff about that. I don't want to dismiss all of that, but let me just tell you, every one of you are the firstborn of the Almighty. You have, been, have a new birth in Jesus. No matter where you were born in the order of your family, the purpose of God being accomplished through your life is the most important thing about you. You're one of the children of God, and you have the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of the firstborn in your heart. So in this particular text, Abraham's children by flesh and by promise are demarcated. And God's grace is highlighted in his purpose being established, not in reference to what people have done. So there is a demarcation which has always occurred. First of all, it has to do with spiritual birth, not natural birth. Secondly, it has to do with divine election, not natural order. Verse 11, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, 
The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I, I hated. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to note about this. First of all, as N.T. Wright highlights about this, it is grace, not race. So the purpose of God being established in a person's life is not about, it is not about the fact that God looks at their life and he sees that they will be good. This is not based on anything that the person has done or will do. It is based entirely on God's own purpose and choice. And Paul is very clear about that. The order for Jacob and Esau is established by God's purpose, not by Jacob or Esau's performance. So God's purpose in election is what stands out. Now, of course, this is something, this aspect of it, spiritual birth, and then God's electing purpose is something which is deeply offensive to many people. Uh, We don't like to hear about somebody saying that your particular nationality or your particular ethnicity or your particular religious tradition, your pedigree, if you will, is of no value. It's of no particular value in spiritual life. You come from, the, you come from a great family. You come from wealth. You went to the right schools. You're highly educated. You're professionally accomplished. And you are in desperate need of a new birth. None of All of those things which you boast in are of any value before God. Now, you probably know that. But if you say that to people who don't know it and you tell them that even though they are wealthy and even though they are highly degreed and they have more letters after their name than in yours, and even though they have high levels of professional accomplishment and even though they live in the right neighborhood behind the right gates, that none of that counts for anything and it may even be something that weighs them down to hell. See how that conversation goes. But if you add to it their religious practice and say, and not only all of that, but all of the stuff over here that you're doing that you think is charitable, all the stuff that you think you're doing in the name of religion, even Christian religion, that you think commends you to God, and makes you better than other people, that is the worst part of all. Because you imagine that something you're doing that you can boast in gives you something to bring to God and say, look how good a person I am. You see, as soon as we come to God and say, look how good a person I am, what are we saying we don't need? We don't need a Savior. I have saved myself. Right? So it's vital that we get this. And that's what happened to Paul. Paul got it. Look over at Philippians chapter 3. Now look at Paul's own words on this. These are fairly well-worn words, but maybe they'll be a little amplified for us now because of what we've just read. And then we'll spend a few minutes on the issue of election. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Beware of the dogs, which was a common term for Gentiles. All right, that's... Or, this, is what, this, is what, this is what Jewish people call Gentiles. They call them dogs. It, it, comes up in, it comes up in the Gospels. The Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus and she asks for healing for her daughter. Do you remember this? And, and, and Jesus says it's not good to give the children's bread to who? The dogs. He called her a dog. Now, was he being mean? No, he was just, she's a Gentile. That's what she is. And she's got great faith. And she says, yeah, yeah, woof. Um, but the puppies get the crumbs that fall from the table, right? Right? 
So she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't uh, say, hey, 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 knock off the insults. I'm offended. She, she owns it. And she says, I get you, but I get the crumbs, okay? That's, that's what I'm after here. And so this was a common term. Now, what's interesting is that Paul inverts it. And he says dogs refers not just to ethnic Gentiles, but to any person who is disbelieving, in particular, the evil workers, the false circumcision. The false circumcision. Now, do you remember what he said in Romans 2? The true Jew is not one who has just outward circumcision, but what? Inward circumcision of the heart. And he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit, glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. When you come across the word the flesh in the Bible, what do most people think of? Somebody's, somebody's in the flesh. What do you think of? Well, we think drunkenness, carousing, partying, immorality, witchcraft. Well, yes, every one of those things are part of the list in Galatians 5 that are part of the works of the flesh. So don't want to diminish them or X them out. But look what else is the flesh. Let me just tell you, there is, there is, there is party flesh and there is religious flesh. And religious flesh will take you to hell just as fast as party flesh. All right? Here's religious flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless that's the flesh everything that you would think of that is commendable and admirable in paul's culture everything about his pedigree now please put yourself in the sandals of paul's parents for just a moment paul's parents raised him the right way sent him to the right schools would have been saying to all their relatives he is doing great. He's at the feet of Gamaliel. He's with the best teacher. He is one of the leading Pharisees in Jerusalem. He's one of the best scholars. In fact, he's been specially chosen for this mission to shut down this evil sect that's growing up. In, have you heard about it? They're crazy people. Our son has been chosen to wrap that up. Can you imagine that letter home? Dear Dad and Mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sending me to university. I'm repudiating all of it. It's of no value. You ever had that letter from your kids? Everything that you held dear, everything that you say is valuable, I count it as rubbish. Now, if you're a parent, you tell me how you get that. How does that feel? Okay, that uh, is felt by everybody in his culture. How can you say, Paul... How can you say that all of the things we believe are what commend us are of no value? It's deeply offensive. It's deeply offensive. See, when you, when you cut against religious flesh, it's very deeply offensive. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and so on. I count them but rubbish. Now, can I ask you a question? What in your past that's good? I know you've got stuff in your past that you call bad, and you count that rubbish, but what in your past What in your past that everybody else would say, that's good? What what of those things do you count rubbish? You see, for many of us, it is not the bad things we've done that get in the way of us knowing Jesus. It's the good things we've done. And we think that our good commends us, and it doesn't. Our good deeds... If we boast in them, if we trust them, will rob us of the nearness of the mercy of Jesus. And that's why Paul has to repudiate not just the bad. He has to repudiate what everyone else calls the good. To say that my my whole life is only rooted in the mercy of God. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. Go back over there and look at it again in that light. Romans chapter 9. Because I want to magnify grace to you right now. Verse 11. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Not just bad, but what? Good. Good or bad. In order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand. Not because of works. Not because of any good thing you've done. But because of Him who calls Why are you a Christian today? It's because you're smarter than your neighbors who aren't. Right? Oh, wait a minute. No, some of them are actually intellectually a little further down the road. Well, it's because you're more more spiritually discerning. It's because you're a better person. It's because you had good parents. Why are you a Christian today? You know why you're a Christian today? It's not because of good. It's not because of bad. It's because of Him who calls. And His call was not based in your performance. His call of you was based in His purpose. And it happened before you were born. Does that mess with you? I hope so. It should humble us. And you know something? This teaching that Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 9 is not exclusive to Paul. Jesus taught it as well. We we can look at it in John 6. We can look at it in John 10. You can look at it in John 17. It's in Peter as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. But then look at 2 Timothy 3. Let's go over there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, and just, this is Paul's last letter. Romans is one of his earlier letters. Let's look at the very last letter that Paul ever wrote, okay? 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. See, is Paul repudiating being Jewish? No. No, he doesn't repudiate it. He just won't boast in it. He doesn't repudiate his community, 
He just doesn't make it the basis of his salvation. He's serving God the way his forefathers did because his forefathers were saved by grace through faith as well. I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. I long to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm sure that is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God that's in you through the laying out of my hands. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us when we decided to follow Jesus. No. Which was granted to us when? From all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of the Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. So I want you to look real carefully there at verses 9 and 10. God saved us. God called us. Nothing to do with our works. It was according to his purpose. Where have you seen that phrase, not according to our works, but according to his purpose? You just read it where? Romans 9. And he was referring, right? To Jacob and Esau, this is God's purpose. It's what he does. And, it's, and Paul says this was given to us in eternity past, in Christ. But now, now has been revealed by the appearing of Jesus. So what God did in eternity past over here, God put you in Christ before you ever existed. And then brought Jesus into the world to save you. So you're in Christ before, before eternity. You know, from all eternity, before time begins, before the universe is fashioned, before any of this exists, you are already in God's heart and mind. You're already His. And then in history, in time and in space, Christ enters and pays the price for us to be saved. And then... God sends the Holy Spirit to make that real to you. He brings to you personally what Jesus accomplished in history. And so you're brought to new birth. And his purpose in your life is established. So the way the Westminster Confession sums this up, it's it's some beautiful words, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, verse 7. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace." So in other words, God does not choose you because he looks at you and goes, ooh, ooh, I want them on my team. 
See, when I was growing up, I was always the last guy chosen. When I was a little kid, and you know, we'd divide up for different baseball teams, you know, and you'd all stand there, okay, Joe, you and Frank be the captains, and then they all choose. I was always the last kid chosen. I hated that moment of chosenness because it was always based in performance, and I was always the last one. As my basketball coach said to me, Cassidy, you're fat, but you're slow. Thank you, coach. I appreciate that. Really, that guy had that gift of encouragement, all right? So, you know, I got better. So I hated that moment. But you see, when God, you know, does God look at you and go, ooh, 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 I want you on my team because you're really talented? Or does God put us in Christ and we're astonished and amazed by it? Because it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with his pleasure and his mercy and his, the secret counsel of his will, which is not open to us, which we don't understand. We don't understand why he does what he does. Now, remember, Paul's going to get to the end of this section. and We looked at this last week. He's going to get to the end of it, and he's going to go, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways? Who has known the mind of the Lord? In other words, this stuff is more than we can understand. So if you sit here in front of a text like this and go, I can understand this, then, then you're kidding yourself. You, you, it's, it's not as though you can, you can, you can just go, well, yeah, I, I got this. It's pretty easy. No, it's not easy. And, of course, it elicits wide-ranging objections about questions about human will and responsibility, not least among them, together with the charge that God's sovereignty is unmerciful and uncharitable and arbitrary. But remember, in Romans 8, this is just kind of unpacking. Remember, everything that's already been said. In Romans 8, verse 28 through 30, let me remind you what that says. It's what we call the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. This goes back to last year, the end of last year. Here's the refrigerator verse that everybody has. And we know that God causes what? All things to work together for the good. And then everybody stops. But don't stop. God, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good. Huh? Yeah, for, 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 for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, these He also called. And those whom He called, these He also justified. And those whom He justified, these He also glorified. All right, so look at that. He, he foreknew, he, you're foreknown. That's a relational word. It's not knowing about because God knows about everything. It means he is in a relationship with you. God was in a relationship with you before you were in a relationship with him. And you go, what? What? Oh, okay, let me give you a different language. We love him because he first loved us. Okay, All right, that's why I baptize babies. You say, well, babies, babies can't understand. Oh, oh, but you do. Right, right. You get it. Yeah, I got you. Okay. No, how many of you know babies do understand? Every mother in this room knows they understand because you hold them and they understand. They know your voice. And even though they don't get your vocabulary, how do they learn to speak? By listening to your voice. And what are you doing every time you look at them and go, I love you, I love you, you're the greatest. What are, what are, they, what are you doing? You're building a relationship with them, aren't you? You're cultivating the relationship. And you don't go, well, they're not really mine until they're older and can make a decision. Oh, come on now. 
Oh, he's six now. Now he calls me mom. So I am his mom. Let's see how that goes. No, 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 no. So we baptize him. When I hold that child, I say, little child, though you do not yet know it, for you, Christ, hung on the cross and fought the devil and died. And in this way, the gospel is fulfilled that he loved us before we first, he first loved us before we loved him. Right? So God foreknows and he calls and he justifies and he glorifies. That's what he does. And it's sovereign. And this is the nature of God's sovereignty, and we have a problem with it. But our problem with it is because we don't understand the nature, again, of the depth of our fallenness. We think our will. We go, well, wait a minute. What about my free will? Okay, let's talk about that. All right. Is your will utterly and completely free? Well, Paul has already said, what about our will? It's in chains. So what has to happen is the chains have to come off. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My soul was free. I rose, went forth, and... How much did Lazarus contribute to his resuscitation? No, nothing. But Jesus was outside of Lazarus' tomb, and what did he say? Father, I thank thee that thou hearest me. Lazarus, come out. And, of course, you've heard the preacher say. He said Lazarus because if he just said come out, every dead man in the mountain would have walked out. But he called him by name. He was definite. Lazarus, come out. And he rose. How much did you contribute to your salvation? John Owen says, the only thing I've contributed to my salvation is the sin from, by which I, from which I need to be forgiven. Our will is in chains. And until God liberates our will, we will continue to choose according to our nature. And the problem with our nature is our nature does not